Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink. Meaning P stands for being persistent. I stands for using your intuition. N stands for networking. And K stands for obtaining knowledge. Preserve and protect your health by listening live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Today is June 11th, 2014. Our show is going to to be about insomnia and how we can get a better night's sleep along with the potential health risks of not getting enough sleep. I'm sure we've all had these issues and we probably all will within our lifetime. So I think it's a particularly important topic and we have a wonderful guest today. Her name is Lois, I've got to get her, her last name right, Ma'arg, or she'll correct me. (laughs) She's a journalist, and she had insomnia in her teens. She took it into her own hands to do a lot of research because she just wasn't getting any relief. And so she authored a book called The Savvy Insomniac. Let's bring Lois onto our show. Hello, Lois, and thank you so much for being here today. Lois? Yes, I'm here. Great. So, Lois, I'd like to start my show out with asking how you got on the path that you got on to today. Well, I worked as a journalist for several years, and one of the beats I covered was health. And uh, for my own self, my biggest health problem had always been my problem with sleep. In fact, um, it really started to bother me when I was a teenager, but Even as a four-year-old, when I was in four-year-old kindergarten, I noticed that when we went down for nap time, everybody else was sleeping. You know, you could tell they were doing that kind of slow, kind of baby breathing. And I was wide awake, (laughs) and I was thinking about all the things I would like to be doing besides taking a nap. So I really started early on having, well, being different from others. I I can say that for certain, but... You know, when I when I got to be a teenager was when I started to feel like maybe maybe this is going to be a, a real problem for me. Mm. So what were you doing at that time when you were suffering through this? Well, uh, I was just simply being a teenager, and and I suppose uh, you know stresses of of school and and maybe starting to date boys and. And uh, I was also 
uh, a musician then, and so there was a lot of stress having to do with performance. And uh, I have a, a sort of a stress-related sleep problem where I get very anxious, not during the day so much, but at night. And uh, I'm thinking and thinking about it, and my body feels very alert and aroused, and, and it's hard to settle down to fall asleep. And so my problem came usually at the beginning of the night. Um, and it would yeah. go in bouts, really. It would, it would go in bouts. And I think it really related to the stressors in my life. Mm-hmm. So did you change your diet? Or, I mean, what are some of the various oh, no. things? Oh, <laughs> no. I, I tried a ton of things, really. I mean, I guess it was really when I was in my early 20s that I started to think, well, I've got to do something about this. And so I I actually went to a doctor who was very unsympathetic. Um, she she just simply didn't have any tricks in her bag for a person who wasn't sleeping very well. So I started out by trying over-the-counter sleep aids, and um, those I found didn't put me to sleep very easily, but they certainly left me groggy in the morning. And I experimented with audio tapes and later audio CDs. And I, I tried relaxation exercises. I tried melatonin, which you can get over the counter in the United States, and, and just a ton of different things. But um, those things might help for a couple weeks, but then seemed like my insomnia would start again. So I couldn't find anything that gave me reliable relief. Hmm. So how old were you when you did? <laughs> oh, don't ask that question. <laughs> we're talking 10 years ago, so I was at my the end of my 40s when I finally undertook this study okay. that I did to produce my book. And uh <laughs> and and during the course of the study, I mean one one goal was of course to find relief for myself. And so mm-hmm. along the way, it wasn't at all clear, actually, when I started out to write this book that I was going to find anything that would help me. But I eventually did. And um, while well, I can't say that I'm cured of insomnia, I am mm-hmm. sleeping much better than before. Um, my sleep is, first of all, more reliable in the sense of I pretty much can count on it, which I couldn't before. Another thing is I think I get better quality sleep, and I even think that I sleep a little bit longer. So those are great gains. What would you uh, attribute this to? Well, um, I would say that one thing that helped me a lot was cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And that's becoming better known now than it used to be, but at first when I read about it, I read just, something very brief about it, and it sounded really, really difficult. Um, yeah. One of the things I was going to have to do was restrict my sleep. And to my ears, being a person who felt like she wasn't getting enough sleep, the idea of restricting <laughs> my sleep sounded <laughs> awful. I mean, it sounded cruel, really. And I wondered, who were mm-hmm. these people, these evil doctors <laughs> who were suggesting that I should do this? So... Um, so I think it was probably probably a dozen years before I actually tried this. Um, but sleep restriction is part of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is sort of a collection of behavioral and and sort of talk therapies. And um, 
and I tried it, and the first three or four days were just awful. Um, I along the way, and I haven't mentioned this yet, but I did develop a fear of sleeplessness, and so that would always exacerbate my problem falling asleep. And so, uh. during sleep restriction, I had to face that fear, um, and basically, it worked so that I was probably getting just one or two hours every night for the first few nights. And so then finally my sleep drive built up so high that I couldn't not have slept. And so that is that is essentially the way sleep restriction works, although many people aren't, aren't quite as, um, let's say, restricted as I was in the beginning. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, listeners, we're talking today with Lois Maarg, She's the author of the book, The Savvy Insomniac. How common is it for people to experience insomnia? And um, is it something that we should be more concerned about than we really are? Well, I, I would say that uh, when I look at the figures, it's usually about 30 to 35% of people of people experience insomnia at some point in their lives. And oftentimes it is con- connected with some sort of stressful incident, say um, exam time at school or losing a job or getting a divorce or so on. But there are mm-hmm. about 10 people who go on to develop a persistent type of insomnia, 10%. And that's the type of insomnia that you really don't want to, you don't want to just let it go because it not only affects your quality of your life, not just during the night, but also during the daytime, but it also puts you at greater risk for just a host of both psychiatric and um, physiological kinds of diseases and problems that you really don't want to uh, be vulnerable to. Because it lowers the immune system? That is one thing. Actually, uh, when I did my interviews, I I interviewed a lot of people who are people with insomnia, but I also interviewed a lot of sleep specialists. And one of them told me, he said, we, all of us, we suspect that it compromises the immune system, but the research isn't in yet. But Uh. just, just recently... Just recently, um, they found that sleep deprivation changes gene expression in in ways that do compromise the immune system. So in January of this year, they did an experiment on mice. Uh, They're not doing these experiments yet on humans, and this type of Mm -hmm. experiment they couldn't actually do on humans. But Mm -hmm. what they found was that fragmented sleep in mice, what they did is I believe they woke them up and did this sort of gentle handling, so prevented mice from getting into the kind of deeper sleep or the consolidated type sleep that they would ordinarily have. And what they found was, first of all, that the cancer cancers that these mice developed spread further and it sped the growth of those cancers and it also weakened their immune system's ability to control or eradicate the cancer. So it looks like, we we don't know the results for insomnia yet, but it looks like fragmented sleep actually does Mm -hmm. have 
a profound effect on the immune system, a very negative effect. Hmm. Interesting. How how's chronic insomnia defined and diagnosed? You have to have symptoms for at least three weeks, and it ah, would be either trouble falling asleep, trouble mm-hmm. staying asleep, or feeling after a night's sleep that you're not well-rested and feeling some types of impairment during the day. And now that could be feelings of fatigue. A lot of people report that they feel fatigued or exhausted. Like um, one woman I interviewed had such a great way of describing it, I thought. She said, it's like pushing a boulder all the time. A lot of people report that that's their worst symptom during the daytime. Other people report that it really affects their mood. As it turns out, insomnia and depression are very strongly linked, and so some people suffer from low mood after Mm -hmm. several nights of insomnia. And Mm -hmm. other people complain that they don't have any self-control, and so they tend to lose their temper more often when they're feeling not well-rested. And then lastly, um, other daytime symptoms, which to me are the worst, um, are are the feelings of feeling like you're not all there mentally, like you cannot mm-hmm. focus, you can't concentrate, and you just cannot think creatively. And so um, it's not a good thing to leave untreated because it, can severely affect your quality of life, but then it has all these long-term health consequences as well. Mm. Is insomnia something that's diagnosed through sleep studies? There are sometimes cases where doctors will recommend a sleep study, but they rarely do. And the reason is because there's really no objective test at this point that will separate people with insomnia from those who don't have insomnia. That sounds kind of strange, I know, but what they've discovered is for about up to 50% of people who complain of, let's say, getting just one hour or two hours a night, 50% of those people, when they undergo a sleep study, are found to sleep be sleeping seven to eight hours a night, um, according to the polysomnogram. So clearly, there's something else going on there. And um, you know, in my book, I talk about what that is. But really, the sleep study is not going to separate out people who have insomnia from those who don't. And so, the best way to get a diagnosis now it's the most frequently used, is to go in to see um, a doctor who knows about sleep, and that doctor will ask you a series of questions, such as, you know, how long have you had this problem? When do you experience this? What are your daytime symptoms? And so forth. And with a thorough clinical interview, that person, if they know something about sleep medicine, will be able to, you know, suggest a course of treatment. Interesting. Is daytime impairment uh, a key feature of insomnia? Yes, it is. Um, that that seems to be, in fact, the thing that motivates people to go in to try to get some help from their doctors. I guess people who only experience trouble at night but don't have it affect their daytime 
their their daily lives are are not so troubled by it. As a matter of fact, I have a friend um, who sleeps only four hours a night, and he's perfectly happy on that. As a matter of fact, he gets more done than anybody else I know. So <laughs> I can only imagine. It, it, I know, I know. It's it's it is so very true. I think that people need different amounts of sleep, and uh, some people get by just fine on four or five hours, and others of us just don't. Oh, I know, I know. I've always been an eight-hour person. Oh. Well, are you a good sleeper, would you say? Most of the time. Most of the time. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's a nice thing. So what are some of the, psych, um, the psychiatric, uh, say, conditions that might be associated with insomnia? As I mentioned before, depression is very strongly linked to insomnia and um as a matter of fact, they share some certain characteristics. For example, people with depression are usually found to have elevated cortisol, which is a stress hormone circulating in their their blood. And uh, that also seems to be true for people with insomnia, at least chronic insomnia as well. Another, another common feature is that there are, there are stages of sleep at night and... Uh, Deep sleep is considered to be the one of the most restorative stages of sleep mm-hmm. um, when all kinds of tissue repair takes is place called, and is that called when you stabilize memori- memories and things like that. And, and it turns out that people with depression tend to get less deep sleep. And some studies, not all, but many studies of insomnia sufferers show the same thing, that the problem seems to be a, a reduced amount or percentage of of deep sleep. So, um, but, the, you know, it's interesting because just recently the, the thinking about um, insomnia and depression ha- has changed. It used to be that when people um, complained of insomnia during depression, well, they, they the feeling was that an insomnia was just a symptom of the depression. But, now they're feeling like the relationship is bidirectional, meaning that sometimes the depression appears for first and then is followed by insomnia, and sometimes it's the other way around. And in fact, more often, it is the insomnia that precedes the depression. And um, just this past year, a researcher believes she... Uh, is, I can't remember whether she's in Canada or California, but she conducted a study where she added a cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia to a treatment for depression. And um, what hap- the result of that was that nearly twice the number of people were cured adding that cognitive behavioral therapy behavioral therapy for insomnia as people who just received um, treatment for depression. So I think it's clearer and clearer that those two disorders are strongly linked. As a matter of fact, the risk of suicide also um, goes up with people who sleep a short night. That would be, say, five hours or less a night. And uh, so... That too is is very strongly that close uh, closely linked to depression suicide, 
And then also anxiety disorders are common in people with insomnia. So um, that's not been as well studied, but it may be true that the same stress hormones that are found more in more abundance in people with anxiety are also are also found in people with insomnia. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Let's talk about sleeping pills. Um, in okay. your book, you, you talk about how 8% of American adults are on some form of a drug for sleeping. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I, think, I think the figure is 8.6 million Americans are taking uh, prescription sleep aid. That's a lot. It, it's a lot. It's a lot. But I'm I'm uh, I'm a person who doesn't doesn't feel that that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think that sleeping pills used judiciously and prescribed judiciously are um, seem to work well. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't consider that the first line of treatment by any means. I mean, there are, there are other things that that seem to work as well or better, and that don't affect the nature of sleep as much as sleeping pills do. Mm. Well, you've you've piqued my curiosity about cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh-huh. Can you go through that process a little bit with with our listeners? Sure, sure. Um what happens is that uh, you are I I actually administered it to myself at first and and got good results, but I then enrolled in a group program at the University of Michigan to see if I could uh, make further improvements. Anyway, what what you're going to be doing is using a sleep diary to find out how much you're actually sleeping at night. So you record things like when you went to bed and when you got up in the morning and how much time at night you were awake and when you might have used, uh, when you might have drunk some alcohol, or when you might have drunk some coffee, or maybe you'll record how much you exercised, and maybe also you'll record how what kinds of medications you were taking during the day. And okay. then at the end of a week or two weeks, you will find out the average amount of time you're actually sleeping. And we're not talking about actual time in bed, but we're talking about hours of sleep and then you're going to start the restriction process where you restrict your time in bed to the amount of time you're actually sleeping so for some people that might be just six hours they might be in bed for eight but they're only sleeping for six hours and so you are going to set a sleep window of only six hours. So maybe you'll choose to go to bed at midnight and get up at 6 a.m. And what this is going to do is going to, um, and and also another instruction, which comes from a stimulus control uh, approach to uh, sleep, sleep, improving sleep, is that you're never going to be staying in bed more than 15 minutes if you're not sleeping. The instructions are always to get out of bed and do something until you feel sleepy and can return to bed. And so eventually what's probably going to happen is that you're going to start to feel a little bit sleep deprived because you're probably not getting as much sleep 
as you normally would. So what this, the effect this has is to boost your sleep drive. And by the end of the week, you're going to see if more of your time in bed is being spent sleeping than before. And if it is, if you reach a certain percentage, then you're going to be able to widen your sleep window slightly. And so it's it's a very kind of a, a slow process of titrating the hours in bed to correspond more to exactly the time you are sleeping as opposed to the time you think you should be in bed. And what this is going to do is it's going to consolidate your sleep rather than waking up a lot in the middle of the night. You're going to be sleeping more consistently. And it's also going to make your sleep more regular. And for me, the, the regularity is, is, is a big boon. I bet. Yeah. It really sounds like a, a great therapy, actually. Well, it is, and then there's a lot of talk about kinds of attitudes and, and beliefs that might be keeping you from sleep. For example, after a while, I became very afraid that I was not going to be able to sleep. So I guess my belief was that I couldn't sleep. And if you're going through this process um, and working with a therapist, the therapist is going to start talking to you about um sort of challenging those beliefs and getting you to come around to a place where you're seeing things a little bit more realistically and certainly less negatively than before. And that in combination with the work on your behavior, the work on your sleep habits is going to, or often in 70 to 80% of the cases, as a matter of fact, will, will, um, improve your sleep and also improve your attitudes about sleep because once your attitudes are improved, it's more likely that you're going to sleep if you believe you can. That's very, that's really true. It really is. So if people that are suffering from insomnia um, aren't maybe as healthy as normal sleepers, yes. what, would you recommend, what would you recommend that they... Um, that they do first go see a physician read your book i I wouldn't uh, um i wouldn't necessarily say that people with insomnia are less healthy than others but they they are more vulnerable to health problems down the line and uh and um one other therapy that we haven't talked about and and is 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 I think a therapy that I'm told, at least by one sleep expert that I talked to, is 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 seen as not as what appealing. But uh, physical training is another therapy that is often re- recommended for people who have trouble sleeping um, because we're a little bit hyper aroused and we we can't get our bodies to relax very easily. And so exercise is actually something that I recommend highly. And some sleep specialists also recommend it very highly. The idea is that what you want to do is you want to get your resting heart rate down and so that you will have a better relaxation response. And that, in turn, will help you fall asleep in the beginning of the night and probably keep you sleeping through the night more more easily. 
actually the 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 research on exercise wasn't so it was sort of bad it was sort of not so um compelling for a while i think what they were doing was looking at normal sleepers and seeing if by exercising they could actually sleep longer and that didn't seem to be the case but in more recent years they've they've done studies some with insomnia sufferers older insomnia sufferers and as a matter of fact last year the national sleep foundation conducted its annual sleep in america poll on uh, the effects of exercise on sleep and they found some pretty interesting thing they they interviewed a, a cross sample of of people in all walks of life and i think there were a thousand people that they called up and interviewed and and what they found was was uh, one that people who exercised moderately to a lot 83% of them reported good sleep quality whereas potatoes reported only something like 56% of good sleep quality people were able who exercised were able to fall asleep twice as quickly as those people who didn't exercise and they experienced about half the the amount of sleepiness during the day as people who didn't exercise so i'm i when i kept my sleep diary i um wrote down i noted down when i exercised and what time i exercised and to my astonishment i found that in general on nights after i'd exercised i did have sounder sleep so uh, you know sometimes seeing it down in black and white uh can convince you whereas before you you don't necessarily have a clear idea of what's going on did it make a difference if you exercised in the morning or the evening some studies that were conducted i think in the 80s suggested that exercise in the late afternoon or the evening was seemed to be beneficial for people with insomnia and i certainly find that to be the case for myself um one theory about why that works is that uh exercise makes you get really hot and sweaty and if you get hot and sweaty then your internally your your core core temperature wants to cool down and so the idea is if you get hot and sweaty say around 6 p.m. then by the time you're ready for bed your core temperature is falling and that's going to help you sleep but uh, it it, well, it also just could be that exercise really tires you out as well so that mm-hmm. that that's what i find most beneficial mm-hmm. but i've heard some people say that no no they they um they do better when they exercise in the morning and in particular that might be a good idea for people who are who typically are night owls who really can't fall asleep until say 1 2 or 3 in the morning then it might be more beneficial to exercise early in the morning huh that's interesting what have you run across in your research um about computer use prior to bedtime. Right. Well, especially for people who have trouble falling asleep at night, it's not a good idea to be using computers and other kinds of devices that are emitting blue light because that's going to interfere with the secretion of melatonin, which is the hormone of darkness which helps us fall asleep and stay asleep at night. And so, 
pretty much the sleep specialists recommend turning off these devices in about two hours before you go to bed because your internal melatonin starts to be secreted about two hours before you feel sleepy enough to fall asleep. And so oh. especially if you have, yeah, especially if you have trouble falling asleep, that, then get off the devices and do something like read a book or the newspaper or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know a lot of people have really gotten into a habit of taking their iPads to bed and just... You know, I know, surfing, I know, yeah, yeah. Surfing the it net. It seems that, they're, they're, that uh, does create a sleep problem. People can't get to sleep as early as they'd like when they do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. So do existing treatments work or, or not outside of, of the cognitive behavioral therapy and, say, sleeping pills and... Um, you know, reducing stress and anxiety, uh, depression. Well, as I said before, I I have felt very um, very much helped by cognitive behavioral therapy. That that helps between seventy to eighty percent of the people who try it. So anything with a success rate of that that's that high, I think um, everybody who has insomnia should give it a try. I've also had very good luck with my exercise, as I said before. Now, we can talk about melatonin because melatonin is is effective for some types of problems. And um, it's, it's not a sleeping pill. It's called, it's something called a chronobiotic. And what it does more than anything is it affects the timing of your sleep. So if you happen to be a night owl, I mean, you struggle to fall asleep before midnight or maybe maybe you can't even fall asleep till 3 or 4 in the morning, then they found that melatonin can help quite a bit. Um, but because melatonin is unregulated in this country, the instructions on the label are not much help for people who are for those night owls who are wanting to use it, because usually what it says is take a capsule or take a pill, take a tablet at bedtime or take it an hour before bedtime. But if you do that, <laughs> you're not going to get any help at all. What you need to be doing, and the, they, they've conducted studies and, and constructed these things called phase response curves where they've looked at you know they've they've tested out various times of taking melatonin, and what they found is if you're taking three gra- three milligrams of melatonin that that what works best is if you take it three i'm sorry seven hours before your normal time when you would fall asleep, so that might be you know late afternoon or even dinner time for a lot of different people. And you shouldn't worry that it's going to put you to sleep at that point because your your circadian uh, system is keeping working to keep you awake at that time. It's really not a sleeping pill at all. Um, but what what what's going to happen there is it's going to trick your body into thinking that the nighttime is coming a little bit earlier than it does, and so you'll be able to fall asleep a little bit earlier. Say instead of you know, falling asleep at two o'clock, you might start falling asleep at one o'clock. Now, the other, the other important therapy for people who are night owls 
is bright, mm-hmm. bright light therapy. And I don't know oh, how many of your listeners that? have have um, have heard about this, but it's actually the number one, even before melatonin. It's the number one therapy for people who have what they call delayed sleep phase disorder. And um, what is involved there is exposing yourself to bright light very early, right after you get up for two hours. And so in the summertime, that might not be so difficult to do, but in the wintertime, it's hard. And plus, you're oftentimes getting ready for work or getting your kids off to school early in the morning, and it doesn't seem that convenient to sit beside a light box. However, that is what is recommended. Um, you can, you know, be um, about two two feet away from the light box, or bright sunlight is, of course, the best, but if you have to use a light box, then you can do that. And it doesn't have to be consecutive time. It doesn't have to be two hours straight, but you, you need to expose yourself to as much bright light as early in the morning as possible for two hours. And that, too, will shift your sleep to an earlier hour so that if you normally would fall asleep at 1 o'clock, at, in the morning, then you might be able to shift your sleep and at to um, to begin at midnight. So usually, oh, what they recommend with people with people who are night owls is that they combine this bright light treatment with melatonin, and that seems to be that seems to work pretty well for many people. Oh, those excellent suggestions, really are. Yeah. I've never heard about the bright light therapy. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that is a very big thing now. And and as a matter of fact, uh we haven't talked about the other type of timing problem for sleep, which is advanced sleep phase a disorder where people are falling asleep at 8 or 8 o'clock in the evening. And so they basically have no social lives because they uh are just early really early birds. And so here too, bright light therapy works very well. But in this case, what you want to do is you want to expose yourself to the bright light in the evening because that's going to delay your sleep cycle, which is what these people who are these really early birds want to do. So, you know, when you're sitting and watching TV or reading a book or something, it's much it's much easier to sit down beside a light box for two hours than in the morning when you're trying to get up and get everybody out, out of the house. Sure. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. And of course, um, you know, we all they, know they've also that found that uh-huh. um, yoga and Tai Chi are also good for uh, have been at least studied somewhat uh, and have helped people with sleep problems. Yoga seems to uh, help people um, downregulate arousal and develop a greater tolerance to stress, which is all something that's desirable if, you, if you've got a sleep problem. And with Tai Chi, they've done a couple of studies on adults 55 and older, and they've found that that also is helpful for people's sleep, particularly for people who are just having, I don't know, some mild problems, from some mild sleep problems. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you, you've come up with some really great suggestions for our listeners. Again, listeners, we're talking with Lois Maark. 
She is the author of the wonderful book, The Savvy Insomniac. Lois, where can our listeners purchase your book? I have a, a blog and a website. It's www.thesavvyinsomniac.com, but it's also available on Amazon in both print form and as an ebook. And it's also available from other online bookstores as an ebook. Um, whether you've got Nook or Kindle or whatever, it is available. And uh, I wanted to mention that the subtitle of my book is, well, the title is The Savvy Insomniac, but the subtitle is A Personal Journey Through Science to Better Sleep. And it is, uh, it talks some about, I talk some about my personal journey, but I interview quite a few other people with insomnia. I felt that in order to write a book that was useful to people out there, I would need to talk about many different kinds of insomnia. And I'm also looking at attitudes toward insomnia and how they've changed in the past, well, several hundred years, but especially in the last 200 years. I'm delving more deeply into science, uh, the science behind insomnia, because I think that's often what what self-help books lack. And finally, I'm I'm giving a sort of a, a wider array of treatments, I think, than most other books on the market do. One thing I didn't mention was that there are some there are some supplements and some dietary dietary changes that are that possibly are helpful with sleep. Um, valerian is one substance that your listeners have probably heard about, and sort of. Um, some some studies do suggest that this is helpful, others don't. But more recently, there was a, a, a study suggesting that for postmenopausal women, it it could be a help. And so now I was happy to find out that now you can buy the, it in capsule form rather than buying a tincture. I tried it out, and it sure does smell terrible. Um, another <laughs> substance. Another oh, supplement that is is helpful to sleep is tryptophan, and tryptophan is found in in different foods turkey. such as turkey, turkey and egg whites and uh, milk products and nuts and seeds and legumes. And if you're going to have a bedtime snack, often it's recommended that you combine a food high in tryptophan with a food that is. Um, also contains carbohydrate, complex carbohydrates. So you might have a small turkey sandwich or cereal and milk or hummus and pita bread or something like that. And what that enables the tryptophan to get across the blood-brain barrier uh, because there aren't so many um, other molecules competing to do that. Mm. Now, one last thing that I've blogged about, actually, and by the way, I blog every week on my um, on my website, is tart give that cherry again. juice. Give that, ad- give, give that address cherry. again, your blog. Oh, that address is www.thesavvyinsomniac.com. And the, the last thing I wanted to mention that has is starting to get some study is tart cherry juice. And um, they're, they're finding now that a glass in the morning and a glass in the evening has been helpful to people who have tried this, so it's something to try. Well, I know cherry if juice you have is a, good for gout. 
<laughs> it is, yes. As a matter of fact, it is, and it apparently apparently it contains quite a bit of melatonin, which is is good for sleep. Oh. Um, but it also has anti-inflammatory prop, uh, properties, and so it might just be that you know if people are having small aches and pains when they're trying to fall asleep, it might alleviate some of those, and so the, in that way, oh. it'll put people to sleep more readily. That that's uh, great. It's really great to know. It tastes good yeah. too. <laughs> it's delicious. Yeah. yeah. It really is. Hmm. Well, Lois, I just wanted to personally thank you for coming on to our show today. Um, you poured your heart into this book, The Savvy Insomniac. It is absolutely excellent. Um, you have. A lot of citations in it, so you really did do very thorough research. And again, tell the listeners where they can purchase your book. Give them your yes, blog it's address. Savvy Insomniac: A Personal Journey Through Science to Better Sleep, and it's available on my website www.thesavvyinsomniac.com. It's also available on Amazon in both the print format and for Kindle. And then it's also available from Barnes and Noble and all different online booksellers in ebook format. Thank you well, so thank much, you Denise, so much. for having me on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Same here. Okay, listeners, we um will be back again next Wednesday at 4 p.m., and that's Pacific Standard Time. So please tune in. If you missed any portion of the show, you can find it on iTunes, or you can go to my website, which is www.healthmedianow.com. If anybody wants to reach me, they can at my email address, which is denise at healthywellbeing.net. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to my listeners again next week. Bye-bye for now. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer? Now What? for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? Listeners, just wanted to remind you that the entire contents of this radio show is based upon the opinions of Denise and her guest. It's not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional, and it's not intended as medical advice. We're sharing knowledge and information with our guests. We encourage you to make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified healthcare professional of your choice. 
These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.